Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Welcome to the premiere edition of The California Report. I'm Maya Krejci. This is The California Report. I'm David Wright. I'm Scott Schaefer. I'm Penny Nelson. I'm Rachel Myro. I'm Queenie Kim. I'm John Sepulveda. I'm Lily Dramali. I'm Saul Gonzalez. And I'm Sasha Coca. And we're celebrating 25 years of The California Report. Both our statewide morning news service and our weekly magazine show have been bringing listeners across the state news and culture stories for a quarter century about the real people and the places that make the Golden State unique. Being at Lake Tahoe, that's Sierra so cool. Nevada. Uh, the Imperial Valley. Yeah. The Jerry Garcia Memorial Elevator. To San Diego. Of San Francisco. On the Long Beach Freeway. In Butte County. Coming to Fresno. Los Angeles County. Auburn Dam. Uh, to Livermore. Los Angeles. Monterey. Sacramento. In the city of Carson. This is Southern California, sunny. To Santa Paula. Shasta Dam. In Santa Cruz. To Bakersfield. Uh, Yosemite. As far as California is concerned, this is like the best. We're the California Report for those only in California stories. Over the next couple months here on the California Report magazine, we're going to be digging into our archives to share some of the stories we've brought you over the last two and a half decades from almost every corner of the state. This week, we're looking at some of the ways California has been a real trailblazer around issues like climate change, immigrant rights, the legalization of marijuana, and LGBTQ rights. And who better to join us to reminisce about all this than longtime California Report host Scott Schaefer, who spearheaded this show and our morning news service for 18 years. Now he's senior editor of the Politics and Government Desk at KQED, where we produce the California Report. Hi, Scott. Hey, Sasha. It's so great to have you back on the show. Well, thanks. The show actually launched 25 years ago this week in October of 1995. The idea when KQED decided to launch this show and, and ask the NPR stations around California to pick it up was to really create a news service for the whole state, you know, which was kind of an ambitious idea because we're such a sprawling state. We're so geographically diverse. We're so racially diverse. We're sometimes very divided. But the idea was to have a news service and a longer magazine show for the entire state. Welcome to the premiere edition of The California Report. I'm Maya Krejci. It's been amusing for me to watch white America realize what black America has known all along, that sometimes justice may or may, may not be done. I mean, with us, our history is that justice ain't done. On today's show, a conversation with four Californians about the O.J. Simpson case, an American event that revealed and maybe widened the gaps dividing the races in this country. Also, an interview with Ross Perot. 
Los Angeles healthcare still in crisis, and the anniversary of Operation Gatekeeper on our southern border. But first... Wow, that is a time capsule back to the mid-90s. Yes, that music is... (laughs) That music and Ross Perot, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Ross Perot. Although in some ways, things really haven't changed that much, especially when it comes to questions of race and justice. I mean, that opening soundbite, it could have been from today. But it was from back in 1995. Scott, when did you get your start on the California Report? In 1998, I was actually working as a political consultant uh, with a firm in San Francisco. I was a partner in that firm. And uh, Raul Ramirez, uh, our uh, old friend who passed away a few years ago and who was instrumental in so many things at KQED, he called me and asked me if I was interested in hosting. Uh, The host at that time was leaving. And it was a tough call for me because it was an election year. <laughs> One of the candidates running was Gray Davis, who was running for governor that year. And I had worked for him uh, when he was state controller in the earlier in that decade. And I had to you know, disclose on the air that I had worked for Gray Davis if I ever did a story about the governor's race. And you know, looking back on it now, Sasha, it's kind of hard to believe that they hired a political consultant to host uh, a news show, but they did. You know, let's rewind back to 95. California was still reeling from the passage of Proposition 187 the year before, which was a landmark measure that would have denied medical care and social services to undocumented immigrants. Prop 187 was really a landmark ballot measure. And I would say, along with maybe Prop 13 in 1978, those are the two maybe best known uh, for different reasons, ballot measures in the whole history of the state of California. And, you know, Prop 187, very controversial. It was uh, endorsed uh, by Pete Wilson, who was running for re-election as the Republican governor that year. And Prop 187, of course, passed easily. But it just shows you how different the state is today, uh, all those years later. And Prop 187 is a big part of that because it was really the thing that awoke the Latino community politically. And many of the people we know now in public office uh, really got their start during the Prop 187 campaign, the No 187 campaign. You know, back in 2014, Scott, you did a story looking at the 20th anniversary of the measure and how it changed things for the state. I'm standing at the border crossing between Mexico and California. It was shown in a 1994 TV ad for Governor Pete Wilson. They keep coming. Two million illegal immigrants in California. The federal government won't stop them at the border, yet requires us to pay billions to take care of them. It's provocative images of people streaming in from Mexico illegally helped propel Wilson to a re-election landslide. But it came at a cost to the Republican Party in California. Well, this is the world's busiest port of entry, uh, San Ysidro, which is the port of entry between San Diego and Tijuana. I'm standing near the border with Pete Nunez. He was U.S. attorney for San Diego under President Reagan and one of the chief proponents of Prop 187. In, in the narrower sense, we wanted to, to uh, implement at the state level some measures that would make it more difficult for illegal aliens to survive in the state. 187 called for preventing undocumented immigrants from getting any public benefits, including health care and education. It required school districts to verify the immigration status of all students and their parents. 
And it was a wake-up call for a lot of young Latino activists, as you say, Scott. Yeah, I mean, many of the people we know now in public life, people like Alex Padilla, the Secretary of State, uh, and Lorena Gonzalez, who is a very powerful assemblywoman from San Diego. In fact, I talked with her for that story. I believe we were standing under a freeway overpass in her district. And she talked about how Prop 187 affected her and her family, and her mom in particular. She said, you, you know, there are a number of things you can do. You, you can become an attorney, you could represent immigrants, you could uh, go into politics, you could do any of these things to really change the way people look. Today, Lorena Gonzalez represents the 80th Assembly District in San Diego. Standing in Chicano Park beneath a freeway overpass in the Barrio Logan neighborhood, she marvels at how much politics have changed since Prop 187. The best we had hoped for for a while there was just to stop it and now have completely reversed it and welcomed all immigrants into our community and said we need to do something about this. So in 1996, you know, the second year of the show, California was having a very different conversation about questions of race and and privilege and power. It was. And, you know, that year, 1996, was when voters passed another ballot measure, Prop 209, that ended affirmative action in California. And here we are in 2020, and voters are again going to take that issue up with Proposition 16. So you just see a lot of these issues coming back many years later, but being talked about in a very different way. Well, another trailblazing piece of legislation that we covered on the California Report that year was Prop 215. Prop 215 also among those that passed at this point. Uh, that's showing 55 percent in favor and 45 percent against. And Sasha, that's David Wright, who was one of the very first hosts of the California Report. He's gone on to work for ABC News. But right here, uh, he's talking uh, on election night uh, with the passage of Prop 215. Prop 215 is, of course, the medical marijuana initiative, an initiative that legalizes marijuana with a doctor's prescription. And joining us to talk a little bit about that. Well, let's hear a piece uh, from back then uh, where reporter Ansel Martinez went to a cannabis buyer's club. They were just starting to kind of come out into the open back then. The largest marijuana club in the state is the Cannabis Cultivators Club in San Francisco. This is the Jerry Garcia Memorial Elevator coming to our service here. John Entwistle is the treasurer of the 1,500-member Buyers Club. We descend slowly on a freight elevator to the basement, the least traveled portion of this brick building. We have a labyrinth of, just a labyrinth of cavernous space down here. And I think there's also a really great scene, if I remember in this story, of what was considered an illicit drug deal at the time. The heart of marijuana country in California is Humboldt County, four hours north of San Francisco by car. Marijuana is the biggest cash crop in this region of hills, valleys, and redwood forests. Tonight, my guide is a courier for a marijuana buyer's club who drives a van. He's tucked away $20,000 in hundreds, fifties, and twenties. Although he'll purchase marijuana for medical distribution, he still faces arrest if he's stopped and searched by the highway patrol. On a muddy road near the Eel River, we make our nighttime rendezvous. A pot grower hands over clear plastic bags filled with five pounds of sensimia, named for the seedless bud of the female marijuana plant. 
It's pitch black out, but with the illumination of a miner's lamp, the pot farmer counts the cash while the courier presses the soft and potent marijuana between his thumb and forefinger. Within 15 minutes, the courier heads back to San Francisco while the grower drives home on a windy one-lane road. I, I want to know how he knew it was powerful. <laughs> right, and it's so interesting to hear that today, right? It was such an illicit transaction. It's like reefer madness, too. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, since then, a lot has changed. I mean, pot is legal not only for medical consumption, but also for recreational use in the state. Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show, and you can list the issues where California has been out in front, and it seemed a little crazy at the time. And now those issues have, you know, as as Gavin Newsom likes to say, California is like the coming attractions for the country. And Prop uh, 215 is certainly an example of that, gay marriage, plastic bag bans. Uh, you can just go down a very long list of issues that started here. Well, let's talk about California's pioneering role when it comes to same-sex marriage. I remember it well, Sasha. Uh, it was 2004. And, you know, Gavin Newsom had only been in office as mayor of San Francisco for two months. And this issue had never come up during the campaign. And so all of a sudden, one day, I think it was a Friday afternoon, he announced and the city recorder announced that they were going to start issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. And pandemonium ensued, I'd say. Um, and it also happened to be Valentine's Day weekend. And Deirdre Kennedy, who was uh, our, one of our reporters back then, uh, was at City Hall. San Francisco City Hall was overwhelmed Friday by hundreds of gay and lesbian couples who wanted to get married. Officials in the county clerk's office were performing ceremonies as fast as they could. So James, as you put the ring on Nicholas's finger, repeat after me. I give you this ring. I give you this ring. In token and pledge. In token and pledge. Of my constant faith. Of my constant faith. And abiding love. And abiding love. With this ring. With this ring. I thee wed. I thee wed. Ah, wonderful. <laughs> James Warren and Nicholas Barham have been domestic partners for more than two decades. We fell in love literally the first day we met, and so that seemed you know, it just seemed We've been like that was enough. for 23 years, basically. Yeah, you know, so this this is more about uh, the recognition and then the legal aspects of it. But the jubilation was marred by demonstrations and legal challenges by opponents of gay marriage. Muslim demonstrators gathered on the steps of City Hall and waved banners calling homosexuality a crime against the Koran. At least three groups filed legal actions to try to block the weddings, accusing Mayor Gavin Newsom and other officials of violating state law and acting unilaterally without consulting the public. San Francisco officials said they fully expected a flurry of legal challenges. On Thursday, Mayor Newsom denied speculation that he pushed the marriage licenses through on a day the courts were closed in order to preempt legal efforts by opponents. He said he's just upholding his oath of office to protect the constitutional rights of all citizens. It's crystal clear from my perspective. What we were doing before 11 o'clock this morning was discriminatory. And now what we're currently doing is not. You know, and Sasha, I had covered issues like this on and off over the years. And that Saturday morning, I woke up and my partner, John, and I looked at each other and said, why don't we go down to City Hall and get married? We'd been together about three years at that time. And we did. 
Uh, it was very spontaneous, and we went down, we did it. But then I realized I had to disclose that on the air. And uh, I did that while I was uh, talking with a legal scholar about, you know, what was going on at City Hall. Suggested that there's a fair evidentiary record that needs to be created, and that's something not suited to being handled quickly by the Supreme Court. So that'll make its way up through the trial courts in a separate track. I assume that's right. More than 4,000 couples, including my partner and I, now have marriage licenses. What's the legal status of those? You know, right now, I love how you handled that. I mean, you just kind of did it as an aside, without a lot of fanfare. And I was grammatically incorrect. It should have been my partner <laughs> and me. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, no, I, I didn't want to make a big deal of it. But, you know, I, I did feel obligated. And frankly, I had been told that I needed to do that. And, and I did it a few other times. You know, again, in passing, I didn't want to make a big deal about it, but just for full disclosure. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting time capsule to hear that. I wonder whether today, that would even be something that a news director would ask you to do. Yeah, exactly. And I think we have had all across the country in newsrooms of all kinds, conversations like this, you know, can you cover LGBT rights if you're gay and not be biased? Can you cover the school board if you have kids in the public schools? Uh, can you cover racial issues or racial you know, justice issues if you're a person of color? I think all of us would say, yes, of course. And we all use that experience that we have uh, to inform us in our reporting. But that's really fundamental to being a journalist is to be able to set aside your personal uh, biases to just uh, tell the story. Right. Or the ways your personal experiences shape your ability to be able to access certain communities and tell those stories. I mean, it's all intertwined. It is. It totally is. Scott, obviously, the controversy over marriage equality didn't end in 2004. In 2008, the California Supreme Court overturned a ban on same-sex marriage, and couples started getting married around the state. At the same time, on the ballot that November, Proposition 8, which would have defined marriage as between a man and a woman. And I was the Central Valley Bureau Chief for the California Report then, based in Fresno. I went down to Bakersfield to talk to some of the brave couples who showed up to get married, despite the fact that the county clerk there had decided to stop issuing marriage licenses altogether to protest same-sex marriage. And I want to play a clip from the story I filed back then. By the way, I had rushed to the scene so fast that I accidentally backed my car into something uh, and crashed the back of my car. So I was kind of stressed out, and I sound really different, super low energy in this story. Later that morning, Daniel Nauman and Roland Veriland were married in cowboy outfits. Nauman says their wedding day will always be special, no matter what voters decide on the November ballot. Life is full of Novembers. This is our day. We won't ever forget this, no matter what paper is given to us or taken away from us or folded or mutilated, whatever. Nauman crooned to his true love after they exchanged vows. He sang it to me <coughs> about like 10 years ago. Our first Valentine's Day. Our first Valentine's Day we together. Had to, um, okay. My funny Valentine. For the California Report, I'm Sasha Coca in Bakersfield. You make me smile with my heart. And then, of course, the issue made its way to the Supreme Court, and it became the law of the land that people can get married to each other regardless of gender. And, of course, now with the changing nature of the Supreme Court, 
you know, is there a question about whether this law may still be upheld? Well, I think the question with the Supreme Court is, will there be more religious exemptions granted? You remember the famous Colorado cake baker case uh, that uh, was decided and sort of in a very narrow way. But there are many issues like that uh, that will definitely, uh, I would say, come back to the court. Another area where California has really led the nation is on the issue of climate change, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and specifically setting the bar when it comes to regulating auto emissions. Let's go back to a story from 2002 when you were hosting the show, Scott. In a major defeat for automakers, state legislators have approved the nation's first bill limiting car and truck emissions. While automakers vowed to continue fighting the legislation, environmentalists are hoping California will lead the way for other states to tighten up emission standards and fight global warming. Ingrid Becker has more. The bill by Assemblywoman Fran Pavley squeaked out of the assembly on a bare majority of 41 votes and now heads to the governor's desk. Automakers spent millions on an advertising campaign to undermine the bill, which forces them to reduce carbon dioxide emissions from new cars and trucks beginning in 2009. But environmentalists backing the bill had support from business leaders in the high tech and other industries who shared their concerns that global warming threatens the state. And of course, Scott, that was Ingrid Becker, who is the longtime senior producer of The California Report and, you know, who really got the show around to so many station partners around California. She did. And, you know, one of the things that I think really characterizes California when it comes to climate change and environmental laws generally is how bipartisan it has been. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, became governor after the recall in 2003, and he really championed that bill AB 32, uh, which did help reduce greenhouse gas levels. And, of course, Jerry Brown and now Gavin Newsom have picked up the mantle. But it's really been very uh, bipartisan. And here's here's a story from Tamara Keith, uh, who was in Sacramento at the time. And now, of course, she covers the White House for NPR. AB 32 is known as the Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006. It will set into state law a cap on greenhouse gas emissions and empower the California Air Resources Board to regulate the state's largest carbon polluters. The result, the state should cut its global warming emissions by 25 percent by the year 2020. Assembly Speaker and bill author Fabian Nunez says this will put California in the forefront of protecting the global environment. We want to be the first to do our share, to say to the rest of the nation, let's all follow suit and let's work from the bottom up to get our Congress and our government at the national level to play the pivotal role that it needs to play internationally. AB 32's guarantee... California actually hit that goal early. Back in 2016, you know, because we did so much work as a state around renewables and solar and cap and trade. But now we have new targets for greenhouse gas emissions. And of course, with Newsom now, we have a new trailblazing mandate, which is to try to get the whole state to be driving electric vehicles by 2035. When we are looking to achieve our audacious goals to get to 100 uh, percent carbon free economy by 2045, uh, we can't get there unless we accelerate our efforts in the transportation sector. Once again, you know, it's a kind of an audacious goal. A lot of people feel it's going to be very hard to meet that goal. But, you know, if you don't try, then you don't really make a lot of progress, which, uh, as we can tell from the wildfires and everything else that's going on with our climate, that it, it really needs to happen. 
you know, if I have to look back on my career at the California Report, one of my favorite stories was hiking up to the Dana Glacier in Yosemite over these big rocks that are like the size of basketballs to do a story about how that glacier was shrinking. So this water is actually running down underneath the rocks we're walking on top of. So this is basically Dana melting underneath us? Yep, so this is Dana Glacier meltwater right underneath us. I lost both of my big toenails <laughs> on the hike uh, just before my wedding day and had to wear a prosthetic toenail. So I will always remember the Dana Glacier. Uh, but Scott, what, what's one of your favorite memories from all your years on the show? Oh, it's hard to pick one. You know, I dressed up as an elf once to do a story on people who become Santa Claus uh, at Christmas time. I brought two costumes with me. If you want to try one on, you can be an elf. He wants me to dress up as an elf so the kids won't wonder who the guy with the microphone is. We walk inside to a storage room where Santa Charles starts unpacking his gear. And for no particular reason, we decide my name will be Nimble. By the time I'm done, I kind of look like a candy cane. Red striped shirt, red pants, a green vest, and a red elf hat with a plastic poinsettia pinned to it. Oh, you look great! <laughs> I remember that driveway moment right there. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, one that really sticks with me is I, I went to a dinner in Berkeley for men who are getting out of prison who have been in prison for life with the possibility of parole. And every time one of these guys got out of prison, they all got together with the former inmate who just got out. They reminisce, they talk about what they've learned, they talk about the challenges that the, this new latest uh, former inmate is gonna face, and it was just uh, really unforgettable. Gregory Rivers was just released from Solano State Prison after serving more than three decades for a murder. The former gang member was 17 at the time. Now 55, he recalls that first full day on the outside. That morning when I woke up, got dressed, it's about 6 o'clock in the morning, I was scared to open the door because though I'm free physically, mentally, I still have some work to do. You know, I think over the years, Sasha, the, the show, the magazine in particular, because it's longer form, ha has always reflected the person who was hosting. And, you know, my hat's off to you and the current TCR magazine team because, you know, you've really transformed the show into, um, you know, thematic shows that really go deep. You come away each week with a deeper understanding of a place or a person or an issue. And, you know, I think the show is in great shape. You know, after 25 years, you really have the show in a place that uh, it has a, a great future, I think. Thank you so much, Scott. That means so much coming from you. And it's been really fun digging into the archives together to hear how the show has evolved over the years and how we've covered California's role as a trailblazer on so many social and political issues. Yeah. And, you know, Sasha, we have a huge election coming up next month that is really going to determine whether California going forward continues to be the state filing lawsuits to try to stop the federal government. Or are we going to be working with Congress and with the White House to bring some of California's policy? to the country. And Scott, I'm so excited because you and I will get to talk again on December 8th when we actually do a live virtual event for our audience to attend to celebrate the California Report's 25th anniversary, December 8th. So mark your calendars. My calendar is marked. Look forward to it. 
Stay tuned for more anniversary shows as we celebrate the California Report's 25th year on the air. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our director is Amanda Font. Rob Spate is our technical producer with additional engineering from Seal Muller. Our intern is Ariella Markowitz. And I'm Sasha Koka. And we appreciate you, our loyal listeners. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation, supporting KQED special broadcasts from college campuses and other higher education reporting. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest.